Welcome to the Future of Money podcast by the Digital Euro Association. In this podcast, you will learn about the disruption of technology in the monetary and financial system. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the episode. Welcome to the webinar of today's evening. And uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, we're here uh, at Digital Euro Association. My name is Manuel. I'm one of the co-founders of the Digital Euro Association, together with uh, Professor Sandner, Alex Bechtel, Jonas Groß. So today, again, we will focus on the private sector digital euro, so not focusing directly on CBDCs. We have already touched uh, this topic a couple of times, but more on private initiatives. And um, there's a lot of development actually in the field of stablecoins. Uh, we've seen uh, some different types of stablecoins, centralized, decentralized stablecoins. We've already had a webinar on these uh, stablecoins, on this enormously growing uh, new type of money. And today we focus on bringing uh, distributed ledger technology into the, let's say, regulated economy as uh, the regulation of stablecoins is still ongoing. And it is uh, indeed questionable if many of these projects were actually um, uh, we, we, we actually face today will provide an economically scalable, so scalable solution and uh, bring out the um, uh, big advantages of distributed ledger technology. And this is exactly what we will hear about today by uh, our guest, Tony McLaughlin from uh, Citibank. So welcome, Tony. Thanks for your time and interest. And we will hear about the regulated liability network and how it can be used to create uh, the regulated internet of value. So uh, I, I find it very, very interesting and looking forward to your to your content and to your presentation. But and uh, now I don't want to waste any more time here um, and uh, hand over to to Tony here uh, on this interesting uh, event today. So Tony, uh, just a quick uh, notes on you. Uh, you started um, at ABN AMRO, uh, switched to HBSC, then uh, continued to your career at Citibank. We now work in the field of emerging payments and business development. You're managing director there in the transaction banking um, space. So um, we're really much looking forward to your insights and especially on your uh, views on the regulated Internet of value. So that's it from my side. Um, thanks for, for listening. And now I hand over to uh, Tony. It's a real pleasure to, uh, to talk to you today and share some uh, ideas about how we might construct a digital euro, uh, slightly different conception than an instrument which is purely based on central bank liabilities. Um, but before I get into the, the what we're proposing with the regulated liability network, I just want to get through a little bit of rationale of, of how we reach this conclusion. Um, I'm not claiming that we have the right answer. Um, but I hope that in my comments today, I give you a different model to contemplate as we think through what the future financial infrastructure may look like. So starting point is, you know, I've been working in the payment space for the past 30 years. Um, it's only really been cool for the past five years, probably thanks to crypto, probably thanks to Libra and CBDC. Everyone wants to speak about payments now, but I have to say, the news flow around payments, uh, even for me, is kind of hard to, to parse. And finding the signal from the noise isn't easy. You know, the, the gyrations in the Bitcoin price, the interest 
by big tech companies and others in terms of creating their own currencies. Um, central banks interested in launching central bank digital currencies. It's all um, a really difficult uh, you know, environment to understand what's going on at a fundamental level. And, and frankly, there are people who are experts. Some of, some of those people think that we're going through a tulip mania and others think that something really deep is happening. So what I'd like to uh, you know, start off with is just by asking the question that if something deep is happening in the restructuring of, of financial services, what is that thing? And how that might inform, or how might that inform the design of a digital euro? So I'm going to present a very simple framework. I'm going to suggest to you that we're at a very interesting point in the history of money, where the, the kind of contest between digital money and physical money is in the end game. And that's only been accelerated by, by COVID and the rise of e-commerce. So, you know, quite remarkably, our generation is the generation that might see the relative ending of, of physical money. And, and what we're in the beginning of is a contest between very, very different conceptions of digital money. And you might think of this as being a good old-fashioned format war. I remind you of previous format wars, VHS, Betamax, Research in Motion, Blockbuster, etc., etc. Format wars are very consequential for both the winners and the losers. And what I'm going to suggest to you is that we are now faced with a competition be between five very, very different conceptions of digital money. Now, the American writer F. Scott Fitzgerald had this famous saying, he said that, um, the sign of a first-rate intelligence is to be able to hold two opposing views in mind and still be able to function. Now, I'm going to ask you to try to hold five opposing views in mind and still be able to function because we've got five fundamentally different conceptions about the future, future of digital money. So here's number one, and I'm, I'll give you these uh you know, as if I'm a, pro a proponent of each of these different types of money. But number one is central bank money. And the argument here is that as cash dwindles, um, we cannot afford for the populace to only have access to private forms of money. A public form of money needs to be in place. And if physical uh, central bank money is no longer available, then digital central bank money needs to be made available. You know, by the way, central bank money has got great characteristics. It doesn't have counterparty risk. It can display the feature of finality of settlement. And if we launch a central bank digital currency, we'll be able to tackle issues from uh, financial inclusion. We'll be able to uh, you know, communicate monetary policy in new and interesting ways. We may be able to address deficiencies in cross-border payments. And actually, our currency will join this geopolitical contest between different currency blocks. We can't be left behind by others who will launch central bank digital currencies. So that's argument number one, where central bank money in digital form at the moment is the privilege of banks like Citibank or financial, of regulated financial institutions. But in the future, this type of money should be available to everyone.
This is uh, idea number one. The second idea is that um, you know commercial bank money is getting better all the time. Uh, huge investments are being made in the infrastructure to move around commercial bank money, which is, after all, a liability of a, of a private financial institution. And those liabilities that we call money are one side of a balance sheet, and the other side of the balance sheet are risk assets. So the fact that most people transact in commercial bank liabilities, and commercial bank liabilities are 20 times the size of central bank liabilities, the fact that this is the dominant form of money on the planet and we're making it better through improvements to SWIFT, improvements to open banking, instant payments, upgrading RTGS systems, everything that we're doing with commercial bank money is making it better. In fact, as commercial bank money goes 24 by 7, who needs these other innovations in the, in the payment space? So idea number two is that commercial bank money will continue as the dominant form of digital money and the rails supporting the movement of commercial bank money are getting better and better. The third opposing view is that electronic money, and we have the e-money directive in, in Europe, which has been tremendously successful in enabling regulated non-banks to join the digital payments market. This form of money is taking the world by storm. Um, you know, think about the hundreds of millions of customers that PayPal have got. Paytm in India has hundreds of millions of customers. Um, several hundreds of millions of customers in China use Alipay and WeChat Pay. You know, e-money as a model solves for the deficiencies of the commercial bank system. The commercial banks are slow. They're not agile. But we fintechs, our form of money is being adopted at pace around the world by consumers and merchants. Now, electronic money is obviously different to commercial bank money because it's essentially 100% collateralized by safeguarded funds. But the convenience and the form factor of electronic money really means that um, it really could be the dominant form of, of uh, transacting medium exchange in the future. The next conception of money is very different from the previous three. This argument says that in the future, money should be separated from the nation state and the organs of the nation state. So Bitcoin, for example, is not a liability. In contrast to the previous three types of money, um, it's not a liability by design because in Bitcoin, we're seeking a trustless world of money. And you can't build a trustless world of money based upon liabilities. So we're going to have a world of money without central banks, without intermediaries, and it will be exchanged on a peer-to-peer -peer basis. It will be the native currency of the internet. It will um, prevent, because of the inbuilt supply um, limits, it will prevent any authority from uh, debasing the currency, and it will just become the de facto type of money as the world becomes more digital. And finally, the stablecoin argument is, well, actually, Bitcoin and these other um, unbacked public cryptocurrencies will never make it as a medium of exchange because of their inherent volatility. And therefore, if we can have a type of cryptocurrency which has some of the characteristics of Bitcoin, but will 
maintain a stable value versus a fiat currency or a basket of other currencies or other assets, then crypto can become a medium of exchange. And again, it will be inherently digital, but it will cross the Rubicon from being a speculative asset into becoming a, a true medium of exchange, exchange. And so here we have it, five very different conceptions, five opposing conceptions for the future of digital money. We're at the very foothills of this race and extraordinarily powerful players on the field. We've got the central banks, the commercial banks, the fintechs, the crypto community, which is attracting a huge amount of capital, the big techs and those promoting stable coins. Now, the question I would ask you is, what type of money do we want to have in the future? In the money, in the future, should our money be regulated or non-regulated? Clearly, you know, central bank money, commercial bank money, and e-money are regulated They're on the statute books. In a way, they're all the same because they're promised to pay the customer on demand at par value in national currency units. So the promise is always the same. But public cryptocurrencies and stable coins, these instruments aren't so much regulated as the, as the exchanges are regulated. So question number one is, you know, do we believe that money belongs to the nation state? You know, the first three fully accept that, that money belongs to the nation state. The last two, not so much. The second fundamental question is in the future, should money be a liability or a non-liability? The first three are clearly liabilities of regulated institutions. The second two are not. You know, Bitcoin by design and the stable coins, I mean, the, the biggest stable coin in the world is issued by an unregulated entity sold to market makers who sell it to exchanges, who sell it to you. So if you hold that token in your hand, you have no claim on the issuer, no direct claim on the issuer. And the third question is, in the future, will money be tokens or accounts? And this is an intriguing one. Um, at the moment, central bank money, commercial bank money and e-money are exclusively, almost exclusively available through accounts. Public cryptocurrencies and stable coins are only available through tokens. And this is what I want to explore that, you know, what, what might be the benefit of tokenization of money going forward? And, and if tokenization is going to be decisive in the format war, what should the regulated sector do about it? So I just want to, um, you know, pause here for a second and say something I think is an important mindset when we think about um, the value of DLT and the value of uh, tokenization versus an, ac an account. You know, for most of us in the, in the regulated financial system, we deal with accounts because we are recording and moving liabilities. In the old days, we stored those liabilities on a paper ledger. Today, we store them on traditional databases. Both the paper ledgers and the traditional databases existed within our firms. Now, the question is, in the future, might we use DLT to store our liabilities? And what might change if we use DLT to store our liabilities? And I think this opens up some intriguing possibilities. But what we have to recognize is that whether I store as an institution 
I store my liabilities on a paper ledger, a traditional database or a DLT. I haven't changed the legal instrument. If I store my liabilities on a stone tablet, I haven't changed the legal instrument. So what I'd like you to perhaps do is, is to separate two things. Separate the, the legal instrument from the representation technology. But I think something interesting might happen if the regulated sector puts its liabilities onto DLT. Because paper ledgers and traditional databases are within a firm. In DLT, it's a shared infrastructure. So can we create a network where the regulated sector records its liabilities in a shared network? And what might that mean? And what I think it might mean is, is something that we're putting into practice in a competition which has been won by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. They're running a, a global CBDC challenge. They had 300 entries, and we were lucky enough to be chosen as one of the 15, fin 15 finalists. Winners will be announced on the 11th of November. And what we've proposed is this thing that we call the Regulated Liability Network. And it's a DLT that encompasses the liabilities of the regulated sector, meaning it has central bank liabilities and commercial bank liabilities and e-money liabilities on the same DLT. Remember, it doesn't matter where you write your liability. Your liability as a legal instrument survives different representation technologies. So we're saying to the regulated sector, write your liabilities into a shared DLT, and then interesting things may, may happen. So the way it works in the regulated liability network is, in this case, you have the Monetary Authority of Singapore with a partition. And the way to think of a partition is like an embassy. You know, the French embassy in London is French territory. And the MES partition in the regulated liability network is MES territory. Anything written into that partition is an MES liability, meaning it's essentially CBDC. Now, whether MES decides to only give that, that wallet to a financial institution, or it will maybe give a wallet to an e-money institution, or maybe to a corporate, or maybe to a retail customer, that's completely up to the participating central bank. But we've got this MES partition which represents essentially central bank digital currencies. But the regulated liability network is essentially CBDC++. We also have a separate partition for each commercial bank. So there's a city bank partition. That's our territory. Anything that we write into that partition is our liability, as if we'd written it onto our own traditional database, as if we wrote it onto our own paper ledger. It's our liability. And there's a, a partition for each of the commercial banks who participate in the network. And there's also a partition for each of the e-money players. And their partition represents their liabilities. Now, by the backing of that liability, the backing of um, you know, Payoneer's liability or PayPal's liability in the network is different from the commercial bank's backing, but it still represents a promise to pay the customer on demand 
at par value in national currency units. So now we've got a DLT containing the liabilities of the central bank, uh, the liabilities of the commercial banks, and the liabilities of the e-money institutions, the regulated sector. We've tokenized what we call regulated liabilities. And what we think is the significance of this is it's a way for the regulated financial sector to embrace tokenization in a joined up way. Because we don't want to see the regulated sector fragment. To us, the most important distinction in this digital money format war is regulated money versus unregulated money. And we don't want to see a situation where the regulated sector loses the technological arms race. So we don't believe in a world of bank coins where every bank creates its own coin. That would lead to massive fragmentation. And frankly, if we conceive of what we call narrow CBDC, which is CBDC only based on the liabilities of a central bank, every paper written on CBDC talks about its potential to substitute for the private regulated sector. So if what we're really about is pushing forward the entire regulated sector in a joined up way, does it make sense for CBDC to push forward the case of central bank money to the detriment of commercial bank money and e-money? Not if there's a better way, not if there's a joined up way for us to move forward together. So we are putting this into practice in the Monetary Authority of Singapore's CBDC uh, proof of concept. We've built the network. We have a number of uh, very important financial institutions, bank and non-bank participating. The names you see on the screen are the, only the initial uh, members. We've now been joined by about a dozen other financial institutions who are very interested in this model. You know, what's the... What's the so what of this type of network? Well, any payment system that I've seen in my 30 years has been a messaging system, meaning there's no money in Visa or MasterCard or SWIFT or uh, an instant payment scheme. The money is on the edges. The money is in the different institutions where they write their liabilities. The regulated liability network is different because the money is in the network. And that's, if you, if you think about it, that's one of the core innovations of Bitcoin. The money is in the network. And when you have the money in the network, and that network is running 24 by 7, and that network has a programmability layer sitting on top through smart contracts, then the possibilities of um, you know, moving around that money using it for 24 by seven settlement become very interesting, especially if we do two things, especially if we have multiple central bank partitions on the same network. And that's exactly what we want to achieve. So not just a, an MES partition, but a, a, an ECB partition, a Bank of England partition, a Fed partition. And then what you get is something very interesting. You get real central bank money from multiple central banks on the same DLT available for settlement, you essentially get a global RTGS system. And that's something that we've never had before. And the second thing is that, you know, one of the intriguing aspects of DLT, if you think about it, it's 
it's less siloed than the traditional financial system. So Ethereum, for example, in Ethereum, you've got ETH, you've got stable coins, you've got crypto kitties, you've got NFTs. It's less siloed than our system because in a DLT, you can represent any arbitrary asset. And so we're also very intrigued by the notion of not only having regulated liabilities on this network, but also regulated assets on this network. And that moves towards this concept that we call the regulated internet of value. So I'll stop there and, and just leave you with this message, which is it's really important that the future of money is based upon the sovereign's right to decide what money is. All regulated institutions get their licenses from the nation state. The, the sovereign right to decide what money is comes from the social contract. You know, it's one of the monopolies that we give to the nation state. It's extremely important that nation states hang on to that lever of national power. And so it's also beholden on the regulated sector, and I mean central banks and commercial banks and e-money institutions. In the future, stable coins can be part of the same network. As soon as they're regulated as liabilities, they can join this network. It's extremely important that the regulated sector moves forward in a non-fragmented way. Otherwise, we may, may lose the arms race with shadow banking powered by DLT. So as we think about the design of digital euro, why not have a true public-private partnership? Why not have a digital euro, which is a, a network that encompasses central bank liabilities and commercial bank liabilities and e-money liabilities on the same chain? And I would just point out that what we're um, discussing here is not a million miles away from how Target works because each of the national central bank banks project their liabilities onto a shared ledger in the Target system. And therefore, why can't we just take that conception and extend it one or two steps further? So let's take the liabilities of the regulated sector, which currently exists in account-based form within institutions, and project them into a shared infrastructure, which might lead towards the next generation of financial market infrastructures. And with that, I will uh, stop sharing and open up for questions. Thank, thank you very much, Tony. That was uh, very, very insightful, especially also the last part about the MAS work uh, that you are working on. Um, I knew that uh, you were part of the group that was accepted, uh, and this now sounds very, very interesting to me. Also, congratulations at more than a dozen uh, and more than a dozen of financial institutions have now joined you. Um, it, it sounds fantastic. It sounds very, very impressive and also quite reasonable to me. And uh, be before I um, would like to start with, with some questions that I have provided, I would like to, to wrap things up a little bit and try to recap what you have said. Uh, these are basically uh, the, the first two questions that I sent you in advance, but I think we already heard the answers uh, to that one. So I can... So I can use them uh, to reframe what you have actually said. So to me, actually, one of the, the most appealing um, facts of your article and also the, the talk that you've just given is the definition of money as regulated liabilities. So I think 
a lot of people still uh, struggle to to really understand and grasp what money actually is and i think that's exactly what it is so it is a uh, uh, liability of an of an if of an issuing institution and in this case obviously regulated uh, institutions here and he also gave the the comparison to cryptocurrencies uh, such as bitcoins but then also to stable coins and um, the the money that we what we that we currently use um, are different uh, types of liabilities so uh, either from the central bank um, so that's uh, physical cash or central bank reserves we also have commercial bank money which are liabilities of commercial banks obviously and uh, e-money which are liabilities of e-money institutions um, regulated by the e-money directive especially here in in europe um, all the forms of digital money money that we have are account-based monies uh, so they are transferred by you know debiting and crediting one of the one of the accounts either of the uh, sender of, or of the receiver um, and I mean uh, of the institution in which these accounts are held in the balance sheet and with physical money we have bearer instrument um, types of money so uh, cash it is a bearer instrument so that that is uh, I think one of the most important things to understand um, uh, when we look at the, the current money that we have. Bitcoin, uh, on the opposite, is not a liability. So it's, it's, a, it's a pure asset. You don't have a claim against an issuing institution on you know, withdrawing some other asset or, or receiving some other asset. And that is very important as well to understand. It is also a bearer instrument. So, and, and this is, uh, uh, I think, one of the, the great um, advantages that this new technology brings with us, uh, with it, because we now have a, a digital token. Let's say uh, you only had physical tokens in in the form of physical money, but now we have it digitally, and that is basically the the current system that we have, the current money system. And um, then you you also said that you know stable coins that we already see, those are let's say semi-regulated and do, do not really fulfill the requirements of the regulatory network. So they cannot be added uh, as of today because um, a, a safe digital money that basically needs to be regulated, obviously, or from a regulated uh, uh, institution um, like we have it uh, today with our current money system, it needs to be redeemable at par value on demand um, and it needs to be denominated in national currency units. And uh, it's always an uh, ambiguous legal claim on the regulated issuer. That's what we uh, that's what we define as as e-money actually. And um, in the regulated liability network, uh, there should basically be uh, you know CBDC. There should be e-money tokens, and there should be commercial bank money token. And that uh, is basically the basis for for my first question here. Because uh, when we now look at the EU, I mean, we're, we're here at the Digital Euro Association, um, and uh, we obviously focus mostly on the EU here. And with the upcoming EU regulation for stablecoins and the Mika regulation, um, would, this, would this new regulation actually help to create these regulated liability stablecoins? Um, so that's the first part. And then the second part, actually, uh, the, can commercial banks also operate under the Mika and uh, tokenize their liabilities? Or is there another regula uh, regulatory framework needed uh, in order to, you know, make the commercial bank money token reality? Yeah, great question, Manu, and, and masterful summary as well. Uh, thanks very much for for playing that back in such a cogent way. Um, first, that question on the stablecoin regulation. Um, I, I think that you've got 
we've got in Europe a very uh, successful framework in the e-money directive. And if you do a side-by-side comparison between the requirements on an e-money issuer and the requirements on a stablecoin issuer, I can't see where those should differ. In fact, if we create a stablecoin regime, a bespoke stablecoin regime, which is what you might call e-money minus, then why wouldn't the whole e-money industry move on to that regime? So I think the regulatory arbitrage there is uh, is a potential threat. To me, the, the most vanilla way you could regulate stablecoins would be through a regime that looked very, very much like e-money. Again, I cannot think of a single requirement on an e-money player that shouldn't apply to a stablecoin issuer. So that's my my point on on stablecoin regulation. The the second question about commercial banks, tokenization of commercial bank money. As long as we're not creating better instruments, which I don't think we should, I'm very wary about better instruments from a financial crime perspective. But I come back to my point, which is, you know, Manuel, whether I write my liability to you on a stone tablet, a piece of papyrus, a traditional database, or a DLT, the legal instrument has not changed. And so I think it's very, very useful in this debate to be technologically neutral and say that the legal instrument is independent from its digital or physical representation. And therefore, I would argue that tokenized commercial bank liabilities are not a new legal instrument. It's a new form factor for an existing instrument, as long as we're not creating better instruments. And I don't think we should create better instruments when we tokenize commercial bank money. And maybe coming back quickly on on the Mika Mika regulation, um, because this is uh, heavily debated and also uh, expected quite soon to be to be going live, actually. Um, and as far as I understand it correctly, the e-money directive is basically the center of the stablecoin regulation in the in the Mika regulation. So when I if I understand you correctly, you would say. Well, if the e-money directive is a good way to to uh, regulate stablecoins, we should be thankful for the politicians that came up with Mika regulation because uh, this is actually the, the one of the best regulations that you could uh, do for for stablecoins. Right? And, and be thankful for the for the for the basis, which is the e-money directive. Um, you know, in the U.S., for example, there is no such national uh, you know framework for e-money. Um, And I think it provides Europe with a, a good baseline. I mean, at the end of the day, a, a regulated liability has the following characteristics. It's denominated in national currency units. It's redeemable at par value on, de on demand. And there's a framework which means that the customer can be highly confident that when they redeem, they get their money back. And it also means that Each and every one of the token holders needs to have an unambiguous legal claim on the issuer, which also means that the issuer needs to have a relationship, a legal relationship, a contractual relationship with each and every one of the token holders. So, again, if you want to start out vanilla um, when it comes to thinking about how we might 
regulate stable coins. Um, you know, the e-money directive, I think, would be a good place to begin the thinking. Great, yeah. Yeah, I mean, especially when uh, we compare the EU with uh, the United States, we see still a lot of debate how stable coins should actually be, um, um, you know, regulated and a lot of different regulatory um, institutions now <laughs> argue which should be in charge of regulating stable coins and so forth. So uh, I also see that uh, big advantage here in the in in Europe. So coming coming to my next question and maybe coming back to um, you know this new technology. So what do you think? What is so special about cryptocurrencies and maybe stable coins that we currently see? Um, and uh, when we when when it comes to the settlement of the transactions, right? Yeah. Um, And can regulated liability tokens also uh, reap these benefits if there are some benefits? Yeah, and look, I've um, I've always thought that DLT is you know just another kind of database, um, and therefore we have to answer the so what question of, of DLT. But when I when I compare the traditional financial system to Ethereum, for example, I find that Ethereum is always on, but the traditional financial system is not. I find that Ethereum is inherently multi-asset and the traditional financial system is inherently siloed. And I find that Ethereum is programmable and the traditional financial system is not. So I do think, you know, going back to this idea from the Bitcoin white paper, which is an electronic coin is defined as being a, a chain of digital signatures. I do think in that you get this more generic way of representing financial instruments it just so happens that what we've what we've got to do to get the benefits without the downsides is we've got to recognize that bitcoin is a non-liability and so if you could rewrite the bitcoin white paper and do away with a part of the ideology part the part of the ideology which doesn't work for nation states is where it says let's get rid of the connection between nation states and money so if you go back to the kind of first principles and say well actually is there a technology which improves the financial system by re recording financial instruments as chains of digital signatures on shared ledgers then you get to a different place um, but a project that says let's sever the connection between money and the nation state, I don't think it's going to get much support from the regulated sector. Hmm. And uh, I mean, when we when we look at um, the settlement of, of cryptocurrencies and stablecoins, to me, it seems quite novel that you also have a, a token, just like physical uh, cash, actually, that settles <clears throat> all the transactions that um, once they are once they are done, right? So uh, there's no need for for any um, other asset to, to actually settle these transactions uh, like we already have or like we have in the current system, right? In the, in the regulated liability network, to, to make the liabilities fungible, there has to be a settlement layer. So for example, if I'm an institution A and you're an institution B, um, then a payment works in the following way, that you know we, we uh, burn a token in in institution A's partition, we mint a token in institution B's partition, and we send a token from A to B in the central bank partition. And, and what that does, it means that 
the, because when you move liabilities from one institution to another, there has to be a matching asset transfer. You know, institution B will not accept a liability to Manuel without receiving a settlement. And so if you accept that system where we live in a world of different balance sheets and liabilities need to move from balance sheet to balance sheet, then the only way you can achieve that is by settling those obligations in, in central bank money. And that's why the involvement of central banks in the regulated liability network is essential because that's the layer through which everyone else settles their obligations. Yeah, so so recapping, I mean, I also think that is a that is a big um, problem of, of these regulated uh, liabilities that are still kept in accounts, let's say, because they're not, uh, as you said, they're not, um, um, they're not barrel instruments that can actually move from A to B and that are not part of any, any balance sheet anymore because they're still recorded as a liability of also the uh, receiving institution then. And, and every holder of the of the token actually is the, the creditor of the institution that created this liability, right? Um, so anytime these these liabilities would be transferred, actually the the uh, claim against the institution would be deferred, let's say, because uh, you wouldn't actually know. I mean, who who I have to claim my money from, right? That's that's exactly exactly right. Which is if we have a world of again individual bank coins then you know the, the holders of those bank coins are going to have to be KYC customers of the bank. And it's going to be an interoperability challenge, let's say, if every bank does its own thing with bank coins. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, narrow CBDCs, um, if, you, if, you take the, if you take the analysis that I mentioned before about it, it's really a question of, you know, some policymakers, the distinction they think is the most important is public money versus private money. And that is an important distinction. Don't get me wrong. But I think what is a is a more important distinction is regulated money versus non-regulated money. Because, you know, there's, there's always been shadow banking. When you take shadow banking and you combine it with uh, today's technology, like DLT and public networks, You can scale shadow banking to an enormous degree. And, and that's the danger, which is if, if non-regulated money has a technological advantage over regulated money, we're going to see a, sh a shift in transactions from the regulated sector to the non-regulated sector. And therefore, it is, to my mind, an imperative for the regulated sector to respond and adopt this technology but it must adopt the technology in a joined up way because if we do it in a fragmented way, uh, we will not mount an effective defense of the regulated sector versus the non-regulated sector. Yeah, so you, you already mentioned that basically when, when these liabilities are transferred from, from A to B and especially obviously across different institutions. So let's say a city Uh, creates a, a tokenized liability and transfer to uh, to me that and I'm a, you know customer of let's say Commerzbank or Deutsche Bank or even to PayPal because then we have also the e-money uh, world in it right uh, you mentioned 
where you said that these transactions need to be settled in central bank money, just like today, basically what we what we have for right. our payment system. Um, what do you could you maybe focus a, a bit on on that part as well? Because um, it to me it's it's quite interesting how that can happen in an automated way. Yeah. Is it that you foresee an adapter that connects different DLTs with each other? Or uh, where do you see the minting and, and burning of tokens and and and, and all this? So that, yeah. that would be very interesting. For, well, for the for the proof of concept that we've put together with our, our partner Settle, um, who is the blockchain provider, all of these partitions exist on the same DLT, mm -hmm. and um, the the burning of a token, the minting of a token, and the settlement are all orchestrated in a, in a single atomic transaction. So it all happens or nothing happens essentially in a single DLT with a single you know, programming layer on top of it. So we're doing everything within a single DLT for the time being. If in the future it becomes a constellation of different interoperable DLTs, so be it. In a sense, RLN is a concept. And the purpose of RLN is to say, if we're going to have a digital euro, a digital dollar, a digital pound, is there a way of constructing it so that the regulated sector moves forward as one? Because frankly, I would say that, um, you know, where we are in the CBDC debate, it's pure Marxist dialectic. You know, Libra is the thesis, CBDC is the antithesis, but I believe that there's a step beyond that, which is a synthesis where the regulated sector comes together to rise to the challenge of tokenization and adopt DLT technology and exploit the benefits of DLT in a responsible way. So to my mind, I know that many countries are already launching CBDCs or conceiving of CBDCs, um, but I just hope that the RLN concept um, gives people an alternative model for building a digital national currency as a true public-private partnership. And just to um, make this very clear, it's not a city platform. It's nothing to do with anything proprietary. Um, if the community ever builds an RLN, it will be done in a public-private partnership as, as a consortium. And we're not locking in any technology. The consortium will choose the technology. It will be an FMI. In a financial market infrastructure, it will be run according to the PFMIs, the principles for financial market infrastructures. And the reason why it needs to be is because it's a settlement engine and, and it needs to display finality of settlement. And it will need to be regulated by multiple regulators, uh, maybe a bit like CLS, for example. So we think, and look, it's a very heavy lift to, to build the kind of infrastructure that we're suggesting. Um, but so far, a number of commercial banks, non-bank players, central banks have taken interest in the in the model. And everyone who's watching on that watching this can participate. Again, it's completely non-proprietary. We're not building a city bank platform. All we're doing is saying maybe there's a better way to build digital euro, digital pound, digital dollar based upon bringing the regulated sector together in DLT in a joined up way. And then also to use this platform, obviously, to 
built the, the regulated internet of, of value, that was basically your last point, where you say that also tokenized assets should be issued on that um, on that. Uh, yeah. Network. Look, you know, we have silos and every financial institution has silos. And what is a silo? A silo is a dedicated infrastructure for a given legal instrument. We've got silos within institutions. We've got silos across the financial industry. The, the history of technology is moving from the specific to the general. So you move from a specific um, adding device, like a, a specific calculator, and you replace that with a general computing device, you know, a Turing machine. And what I find fascinating about the DLT technologies and the public blockchains is maybe they're showing us the way to have a less siloed financial infrastructure. Maybe we can have a general bean counting layer where you know green beans represent money and red beans represent uh, equities and blue beans re represent you know, trade instruments. Maybe we can generalize that bean counting layer. And also maybe we can change the topology of the financial market infrastructure and put the instruments in the network, which I find to be the true um, insight of, of Bitcoin and Ethereum is that the instruments are in the network. In our world, the instruments are at the edges of the network. And I really loved the, you know, Sun Microsystems used to say the computer is the network. Maybe in the future financial market infrastructure, the network will contain the liabilities and the assets it will be always on, it will be multi-asset and it will be programmable. So that's what we are, that's a big vision, but that's what we're scratching towards, we're inching towards mm -hmm. in the in the work we're doing on the regulated liability network and everyone is welcome to join. And you already have also partners uh, from the, you know, asset side, uh, as I saw, right? So uh, we also look, include tokenized assets in the in the pilots there or in the absolutely absolutely again moving towards a less siloed financial infrastructure would seem to be um you know one of the signals one of the opportunities that the, the regulated sector can take from uh public blockchains i i have to i just may have to make this point which is in the whole history of you know regulated institutions trying to use dlt um, we've been infected by what I call the cult of the use case. And so you, what you've got is someone saying, I've got a use case, can it run on DLT? By the, the answer is yes, because the DLT is Turing complete. Anything you can run on your existing legacy infrastructure, you can run on DLT. So no need to test your use case. The answer is yes. Mm -hmm. The question is what can DLT that do that traditional infrastructures can't do as easily? And again, I think the intriguing part of that is it's multi-asset, always on programmable nature. Hmm. So rather than testing individual use cases where the answer is yes, we need to look uh, beyond the confines of our existing infrastructure and see if there's a better way of constructing these vital national infrastructures, which have to be grounded. Again, the base of this is the sovereign right to decide what money is.
And that's the hallmark of the regulated financial system. Hmm. Now, when I when I look at the uh, debate in especially the financial sector, and when you look at commercial banks, um, there's a lot of debate still going on which DLT to use. And I mean, uh, the, the governance uh, part is also very important. Obviously, if you use a, a public blockchain, uh, you don't really have uh, a possibility to change the governance there. You have to live with the network there is, right? So many institutions actually have looked to uh, build some prototypes on private blockchains, especially Corda, some used Hyperledger. Um, so can you maybe share information on, on what you are envisioning for, for the uh, regulated liability network and the internet of value? Yeah, RLN is, uh, is at the conceptual level and therefore the technology is arbitrary. Mm -hmm. um, it can be any given uh, technology and, and the DLT technology will, will change over time and, and may take new forms. And, you know, maybe at some point in the future, the regulated sector will be able to um, you know, publish their liabilities and their assets onto public infrastructures how, in, in terms of future iterations. That's quite conceivable. We see the same thing in, in public cloud. Right at the moment, the, the regulated sector is on a journey towards cloud, but not fully, but not fully there. Hmm. And that may be a parallel to what happens, not only public cloud in terms of the servers, but public cloud in terms of the bean counting. Is it conceivable that there becomes a general bean counting layer for the world? based upon a public blockchain? Sure, why not? But the RLN concept is independent of um, any given technology. It's, it's really about saying to um, you know, folks thinking through the next generation of national currencies, um, let's not get fixated on central bank liabilities. Mm -hmm. I understand why we're here, don't get me wrong. The, the threat of a non-state central bank, uh, you know, that threat prompted the CBDC reaction to a large state, to a large extent. So I understand why we're here, but I think there's time to pause and think about the best way of constructing the next generation of financial infrastructure. And I, I can't see how that uh, a narrow CBDC is, is the ideal way forward. Hmm. And I think the literature kind of points in that direction. It's very complicated to introduce a narrow CBDC, which is neither too big nor too small. Hmm. Before I come to my, my last question, I quickly want to also raise a question from the audience here. And um, there is a question, you touched on the effects of CBDCs on geopolitics as well. So which blocks uh, do you think will form? That's the question. Yeah. Look. I think that um, the cross-border uh, usage of CBDCs is, uh, is super interesting. I also think that it's very amusing to believe that, you know, in payments, again, I've been in payments for a long time, there, there are no silver bullets. And I can't imagine that there's one instrument which will solve financial inclusion and enhance monetary policy transmission and improve cross-border payments and address geopolitical uh, you know, considerations about the importance of my currency versus your currency. So I think that CBDC is suffering from an excessive weight of, expect of expectations. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. The other thing I think is very important is that countries have got territorial sovereignty and they've also got currency sovereignty. So if you're if you are um uh, a country, for example, with capital controls, and another country launches a CBDC, which undermines your capital controls, you might get a little bit upset. So I think we're going to have to have some ground rules where countries rep- countries respect each other's currency sovereignty as much as they respect each other's territorial sovereignty. Great answer. Um, thanks a lot for your time and for your insights. It was very insightful. And um, yeah, uh, I would wrap things up now. And um, thank you very much for your for your attention and for Great your pleasure. Thanks.